0: slash the codex cantina it all helps us in running the show along with commercials guys so thank you so much we're going to do a quick commercial break and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode while mary shelley may be best known for frankenstein let's talk about the lesser known percy but was also a juggernaut particularly when it comes to this very famous poem that he wrote coming up today on the codex cantina
1: you almost lost me at Poem, but you saved me by the Shelleys, so... <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs>
0: Guys, welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una.
1: And I am scared of Poems Crypto.
0: What Crypto is referring to is typically we do more of these short stories and novel breakdowns. I wanted to bring this poem specifically in because I know, Crypto, I believe you have some experience and even teach around this area, is that correct?
1: Yeah, so Mary Shelley's mom, Mary Wollstonecraft, is a very prolific writer before her daughter and works for women's rights and kind of inspired her daughter to become a writer and helped get her educated. And then that's kind of the reason why Percy takes a fancy to Mary Shelley is because of her intellect and her ability to write. And she was a very strong woman for uh, the time period and probably today as well. So, yeah, she some very important uh prolific writers for the time period and still today
0: so published on january 11th 1818 in the examiner we're going to leave a link where you can read this and hear it for free interestingly enough the link to listen to it is read by brian cranston from <laughs> <laughs> breaking bad and this story is actually a wonderful little kind of like representation of walt whitman's characters from that series if you've ever watched it
1: Yes, definitely a, a character to be trifled with, right? Or not to be trifled with. So
0: why I wanted to cover this piece today, I think when some people hear poems or poetry, they might become a little bit scared or perhaps have some bad memories from school when they're forced to have to learn, you know, iambic pentameter and all this other stuff that might not seem very cool. But maybe it just wasn't the time to click. Maybe it was just the point you were in your life that you weren't ready to absorb that. I think this is actually a really interesting story And I'm not saying this is going to, for some people to change your life and be, you know, 100% interested in poetry. But I wanted to come maybe go through this with you today, Crypto, because I thought there might be some key elements here that might maybe be worth talking about and might pique a little bit of interest, perhaps.
1: I would love to learn how to break down poetry better. I know that you can kind of view them as just song lyrics without the fun music aspect of it. But I get so confused sometimes of what are they truly trying to mean behind the words.
0: Well, and that's a good point too because when we hear the lyrical play that happens in songs, sometimes it's totally natural. Sometimes we can just feel it and go with it. But sometimes there are very scientific reasons behind why some things work better than others. There are reasons that can explain why this flow works but perhaps, you know, a different attempt this one doesn't work as well in this situation. And I, w- I thought we could maybe break down a little bit of some of those reasons that I think are relevant for music, relevant for songwriting, relevant for poetry, and even lyrical prose today too, perhaps.
1: All right, teach me, please help me help me be a better poet.
0: <laughs> so when this story is presented, you know, a lot of times if you're sitting there in class and your teacher's like, okay we're going to go over this sonnet. it's in iambic pentameter. And like sometimes as, you know, students, we can be like, oh, like, like it already sounds boring, right? And teachers will make you learn like kind of like those loose patterns, right? In terms of like the ABAB, the ACDC, EDEFEF, right? we learn these rhyming patterns and then we kind of try to replicate that. But we're never really sure, like, are we doing a good job? Like, what do you mean you have to have <laughs> 10 syllables per line? Like, what does that do? And what do you mean there's like a rhythm to it? I thought we could break this one down with a quick reading of it and then talk about maybe some of the things that make it work and actually kind of quite interesting. So in terms of reading, and again, I'm not a professional reading, go check out Bryan Cranston if you want, but 10 lines, I mean, come on. I met a traveler on the pedestal those words appear my name is osmandius king of kings look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sand stretch far away so it's a very quick read right yes and w- and what I really like about, you know, perhaps when we think about iambic pentameter, there's like this rhythm, like this da-dum, 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 da-dum. And that's part of why these, these lines are broken up a specific way. You'll notice each line, exactly 10 syllables. I met a traveller from an antique land. Right? 10 syllables, and it's always da-dum, 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 where the stress is always kind of like on that second part, right? Right? And, and if we think about the word traveler, where's where's the stress on traveler?
1: On trav. It's on trav.
0: <laughs> so when we think about where this is placed in the opening sentence, I met a trav. So even though traveler, the, the stress is on the first syllable, it's placed in a slot of the dumb. The dumb. I met a traveler from an antique land. Like, even though the words might be broken up, we still have this flow where the stress perfectly falls, where the stress naturally lands in this. And that perhaps could be some of these lessons that we can learn from poetry, from from very famous works like this too, with the word choice, right? If if traveler were traveler, like that's breaking up the de-dum pattern. And while you can do that, there's nothing wrong with that. It flows very smoothly when you do have the stresses falling on the natural letters that they do like that. So I think Shelley actually does a really good job of this, this rhythm that he sets up with this poem and also the way that he's structured it in a way where there's exactly 10 syllables per line and exactly 10 lines, and it follows this rhyming pattern. You have to admit that there is a lot of craft that goes into that.
1: No, 100%. I don't understand, I guess, is how does that add to the enjoyment and how does it add to the story or the point that Shelley's trying to make across if i say traver lover or tra lover or traveler how does that make a difference is one thing that i struggle
0: with let, let me flip the script a little bit there because it's not necessarily why does the the meter matter right like that's the wrong way i think to look about this but i think we start with the word choice because why does the word choice matter for how we fit it into that rhythm and I think this is part of the magistry when we think about songs, when we think about poems, that they feel right. And when something feels right and something feels wrong, okay, sometimes we don't know how to articulate that. And you don't have to. Sometimes if it feels good, it, you can just accept that. But I think what, what we're doing here is breaking down in the reverse of, okay, this feels good, why? And because the word choice and the accents belong on certain words and syllables when it comes to this, we could use this actually as a weapon to further enhance drawing the reader in to this hypnotic state, to draw the reader into that feeling of, oh, this does flow really well. I don't know why I like it. They don't necessarily have to know the inner workings, but they know they feel oh, this feels right. And I think it's more that reverse justification than the way that you have it presented there. Okay. And another thing about this poem is it's very simple. Ten simple lines, right? We have two settings, right? Where we where we meet the traveler and where the traveler saw this statue, right? And just to make sure we're all on the same page, what, what is kind of the plot to your point of the story? Like, What do we enjoy about the plot of the story if it is delivered truly rhythmically and delivered in a pleasurable way? What is the point of this story? What would you say were kind of main maybe your main points or initial reactions to it?
1: Um I was I was confused. I I had to listen to it twice. <laughs> uh and I I'm guessing it's about a king exercising his power over his people. is mm. kind of all I felt.
0: Mm, I think we're going to end up in your alley here, sir. Osmandius, right? Do you know I mean you've probably read Watchmen, Alan Moore, a very popular uh, more yeah. modern, you know. Look at this. Do you know what that's a reference to?
1: So Osmandius, o- Os Osmondius, was a Greek king, a god. Well, it's
0: Something. the Greek name for the pharaoh for Ramses the Second, who who had oh, okay. a reign. Okay. Okay. And he he was considered very powerful, right? But is he powerful today? Was he powerful a hundred years ago? Here he is talking about how he is Osmendius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Right. And I think what's interesting is also how this poem kind of ends in these these words created by man, this plaque. And it shows how he was, he was at the time of the writing, he was, he was a god, right? Nobody could challenge him. Like he had all this wealth and he was so successful. But now his statue lays in ruins, and his the head of the statue lays down, destroyed. And this has a little bit of that you and I talked about Sarah Teesdale with, with Ray Bradbury's The Rains Will Come Softly. Yeah. Where nature comes along and takes back things that is man-made. Man-made's glory, man's creation. We think it's so wonderful and we think it lasts so long, but it really doesn't. So much of what was created back then has been destroyed or decayed and fallen away to that point of how we covered Ray Bradbury's story. We see a lot of that in this one too. The king was so proud. His hubris was probably unmatched with all that he accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yet his kingdom has been decayed and taken away, whether by nature or whether by time, the, the central theme of decay is there where the world has moved on, if you will, to quote, the great oh. Stephen King, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Shelley would like that.
0: <laughs> so let's go back to your idea. You know, and I'm trying to relate this back to stories, right? Because poems are stories, but they're told in in a very hypnotic way, or attend to, right? Which is why I'm trying to kind of draw this to it. The Young Czar by Leo Tolstoy. What was that? What, what did we? What was our hypothesis of why that story was written?
1: A teachable moment of saying, hey, you got to make sure that you make these right choices. Otherwise, your people are going to suffer or you're not going to be a good a good leader of your people.
0: Was it written to a particular person, do you think?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely think it was written to the czar at that time in a way that was trying to convey information without getting his own head chopped off.
0: Okay, so let's let's take that same let's take that same logic. Right. So you teach this right in your class. Who was the king at the point in time, and what was happening at the time in England at this time?
1: Uh, so America is a little baby, a little infant, and we just beat King George III in the War of Independence. So I guess he's saying, yo, King George, nobody's going to remember you.
0: <laughs> well, perhaps some people thought that there was a tyrannical government happening to the king at time of like, look— you think that you're able to rule all these lands and be this powerful king, but don't forget that things move on, right? Like things aren't always going to be this way to have some humility, to have some uh, recognition about people's will to survive and to spread out and maybe perhaps be their own things. That this could have been a warning against, you know, the current king by representing, you know, via Osbendius, the powerful king that is no longer here to, with any power anymore.
1: Could have been also maybe a message to another George that had left power or to the people in power of America at the time.
0: Oh, like so the presidents. So so you're saying, okay, they, they fought their independence. Could it be a warning to George Washington, you're saying?
1: Yeah, George Washington or Jefferson, Madison, you know, those guys that are no longer president, but were in charge. And I don't know, maybe. Obviously, two leaders of some sort is the point of the poem. Right. Be careful we with have, the power that you have.
0: We have an American Revolution happening. We have a lot of ideas of what it means to rule. So could the story be talking to that too and recognizing perhaps where do you exist in the universe? It's, it's an interesting idea and an interesting concept for what is ultimately just 10 lines. That tends to be very rhythmic and I think is a good tool. To talk about, like, what are some ways that we can deliver our message very thoughtfully, very carefully, and even in a way that is easily consumed and, and perhaps pleasurable to read and fall into a rhythm when it comes to reading.
1: What I like about it that I'm starting to learn to enjoy poetry is that there is a lot of open to interpretation. And I know that I, we, we take a lot of liberties on this channel, especially I do, of open opening up the interpretation uh, uh, basket or uh, box, so to speak. And I think that poetry allows you maybe to do that even more so of, of opening that interpretation of what the author could have meant. You know, that's how I felt or interpreted it. And uh, I, I start to really enjoy that about poetry.
0: And that's what can be hard when it comes to interpretations. You want to be right about what did this poem mean and what were its themes but sometimes there's this subjective play and you have to give yourself permission to just wander and allow your mind to just go to what are some of the things that are speaking to you in it? Because that's when literature is most powerful, is when you let it actually just speak to what your your reactions are instead of worrying about what everyone else thinks it's about.
1: And if you bring in your own personal belief system into it or your own personal experiences of who you are, you're going to read something like this, 10 lines, and if you're Uh, a young man, a young woman, a young person in 2021 reading this, your interpretation can be very different than, you know, two old guys looking at this story from, <laughs> you know, our uh, gray beard perspective. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, starting, I'm starting to dig poetry, and I hope that more people can get into it. And, uh, you know, teachers can let people to have their own interpretations and there not be a right or wrong answer, uh, a good answer and a better answer with better arguments.
0: And I don't think literature is about being wrong. It's about exploration. So hopefully... You guys can see through this story, through this talk, that there's a lot to explore when it comes to just a simple 10 lines of text. (laughs) If you're down for more discussions like this and you'd love to see more things along these lines, hit us up in those comments below and tell us what you'd love to see us cover more of. Guys, we post videos every Monday, Thursday, and we'd love to see you on this journey. Una out.
1: Peace.